Hello, this is Jason Kowartz, the editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we talk with leaders in the sports event industry about the issues of the moment affecting sports organizations and the destinations and venues that host their events. Today, we'll be focusing on the sport of lacrosse, one of the few sports nationwide that has seen steady growth in recent years under the leadership of longtime president and CEO Steve Stenerson. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGB Best Practices Seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Steve Stenerson has a long history in the sport of lacrosse, dating back to his college days as a member of the NCAA championship teams from North Carolina in 1981 and 1982, serving as co-captain of the 1982 squad. Uh, Since 1998, he has been the leader of U.S. Lacrosse, which formed after the merger of eight lacrosse organizations and is now recognized as the sport's national governing body. His long tenure at the helm has been unusual among NGB leadership, where leaders tend to have shorter lifespans at the top for a variety of reasons, some of their own making and some not. One reason Stenerson has lasted as long as he has is because of the steady growth that the sport has seen. Once a unique endeavor relegated to institutions across the Northeast, the game has spread nationwide. Today, participation is near 1 million, and there are significant growth opportunities in areas that previously were never on the lacrosse radar. Uh, In just one sign of the sports spread, the University of Denver recently became the first school west of the Mississippi River to capture the NCAA title. Recent months, of course, have taken a toll on U.S. lacrosse as the coronavirus pandemic has put a dent in the group's membership rates and events. But like other sports organizations and NGBs, U.S. lacrosse has plotted a back to competition, drafting a lengthy set of guidelines that govern how events should come back and how athletes, coaches, and organizers should ideally conduct their business. That's more than a bit of a challenge, especially as many organizations have returned to events, not necessarily heeding all of the NGB's recommended guidelines and their desire to get back on the field of play. In this discussion, we talk with Stenerson about what the past few months have been like for the sport and for U.S. lacrosse and the long road back. Uh, We also discuss how U.S. lacrosse has been tackling the nationwide debate on systemic racism, especially in a sport that has not had a perfect track record in that department. And lastly, we also talk about the state of the professional game and its competing leagues and the possibilities of lacrosse getting back on the Olympic program after a decades-long absence, an effort that Stenerson is deeply involved with in his volunteer role since 2014 as vice president of World Lacrosse, the sport's international federation. And if you think this entire discussion will be about lacrosse, we've also got some surprises about some of Stenerson's other athletic talents, including one we're fairly certain you would never guess. So without further delay, we hope you enjoy this enlightening discussion. Steve Stenerson, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Oh, thanks, Jason. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. I've gotten to know you a bit over the years, and it's been just great watching what's been happening with lacrosse and, and how the sport has grown during your tenure at the helm at U.S. Lacrosse, which is uh, more than 20 years, and uh, that's an accomplishment in itself. 
um, in the national governing body world, as you know. But I, I almost feel obligated, Steve, to start this conversation. Uh, I think most people know you, of course, for your accomplishments in the sport of lacrosse. Um, but I know you as well for your uh, accomplishments in another sport, which is the sport of competitive croquet, which I've feel like I need to bring up here just at the beginning of the conversation. We had the chance to uh, attend an ACES conference a few years back in Palm Beach, Florida, and we went to the world's finest croquet venue and certainly the, the finest venue in the United States, which is in West Palm Beach, Florida. And you and I, you might recall, uh, competed on separate teams in a match of rather competitive croquet. Fierce competition. Yes. It was. You had uh, Chris Ramsey from USA Water Polo. So we had a, a lacrosse person and a water polo person on one side. And then we had myself and Denise Parker uh, from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And our team was full of athletic accomplishments. Denise, of course, is an Olympian in archery with an Olympic bronze medal to her name. And I think something like 15 Pan American medals, which means that combined our team came into that match with an Olympic bronze medal and 15 Pan Am game medals. Heavily favored. Let's just say, let's put it that way. Heavily favored. Yes. And at the end of that, uh, at the end of that match, I had a ball in front of the wickets and you had one behind me. And as the sport goes, you had to get yours somehow through that thing without mine going through, which seemed an impossible shot. And yet you pulled off uh, this shot heard around the world that I would think only a professional croquet player might be able to do where your ball leaped over mine into the wickets and in my journalistic instincts kicked in and I, I took a photo of that moment. It's one of my favorite photos of all time showing just how accomplished you are in that sport. Yeah, it just goes to show, first of all, that the, the this luck is an important part of success in sport, A, and and B, that your, your ability to capture that very moment with the ball in midair was, shows your prowess not only within the podcast world and the journalism world, but certainly... <laughs> The photography world. Thank you. I, I felt like I brought next to nothing in the athletic department to that competition, so I was fairly proud of myself that I could at least get a photograph. Uh, I was proud of that my, picture, my and I shared it with my kids and my wife, and uh, it's, <laughs> it's one of the all-timers. At some point, I'm going to get that framed. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to downplay your athletic accomplishments uh, by any means. Uh, I don't know, Steve, a lot of people may not know this, but in addition to your, of course, your administrative success at U.S. Lacrosse, you not only played lacrosse in college, but you were part of two national championship teams at North Carolina. I was. That was a long time ago. And uh, as I like to share accurately, I might add, I was a an average player on great teams. And um, you know, lacrosse is one of the ultimate team sports, and it uh, takes all shapes and sizes to put together a successful team. And I was just happy to be a part of that. There were a lot of guys on that team that were all Americans and Hall of Famers, and uh, I was lucky to be within their presence. Yeah, that was uh, quite a time in North Carolina. Quite a few uh, sports uh, recognized for their championships. We won the men's basketball championship my senior year with Jordan hitting the shot. We had Lawrence Taylor and beating Michigan in bowl games. It was a it was a nice time for Carolina athletics, for sure. Well, Steve, what was your introduction to the sport? Obviously, you played uh, in college, and I assume you grew up playing the sport in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, it was just luck. I came, uh, I'm born and raised outside of Baltimore, Maryland, in, in Baltimore County. And lacrosse has been a, a fixture in youth sports in Baltimore County for a long time, one of the traditional hotbeds, if you will, of the game. And it was just a sport I was introduced to uh, at school and really enjoyed and continue to play in, in recreation, you know, which has changed considerably these days with the advent of club sports, but really loved it and was a three-sport guy throughout 
a great school and uh, played football, basketball, and lacrosse. And, and uh, while I loved football and thought about playing that at a lower level in college, uh, my real dream was to, was to play lacrosse at a Division I institution and get a degree in journalism, which I did from Chapel Hill. So I, it was really a, a, just a magical opportunity. And again, back to the luck I experienced in croquet, a, a lot of it was lucky with respect to the selection of Carolina, the ability to get in Carolina and be there at such a magical time. Yeah, things uh, obviously seem to go your way. And things have been going the sports way in general, certainly. Uh, the last 15 years in particular have just seen phenomenal growth uh, in terms of the number of players, uh, in terms of the membership. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you're over something like 430,000 members right now at, at U.S. Lacrosse? Correct. So things have obviously been on the upswing, but it is almost impossible to have a conversation about sports outside of the current context of what's been happening here in the last couple weeks and, and couple months. The pandemic, of course, has affected everything in all levels of sports. So I do want to talk a bit about what that has meant for your organization, Steve. Give me an idea of what, uh, I guess, at, at a high level, what the last couple of months have been like for your organization. Yeah, they've been very challenging, and and I've had the opportunity, obviously, to speak to a lot of my peers in this regard, not only with single-sport NGBs, but multi-sport organizations nationally and even small uh, local organizations. But it's been uh, traumatic, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, you know, we're a nonprofit, a 501c3, that relies on membership support primarily, but also sponsorship support and philanthropy, of course, mm -hmm. and our membership uh, numbers with the suspension of play have plummeted. And that's uh, understandable, but it has impacted us in a very significant way. We've had to make some very hard decisions with respect to our workforce. You know, we're uh, this year we were projected to be at about 95 staff. We have fro we froze hires. We did this early, perhaps compared to some back in. By the end of March, we had made decisions to reduce our headcount, to furlough a number of employees, and to institute uh, across the board salary reductions for the remaining full-time staff. And that was, as I say, traumatic for our organization. We reworked our operating budget. We're about a $21 million organization. Mm -hmm. And we are anticipating at least a $7 million reduction in, in revenue this year. And those reductions in workforce and also the uh, the reductions in our operations that we've had to make as, re as a result of those projections are planned for the remainder of the year. So, you know, the pandemic has provided some very tangible impacts to our organization and our sport. But sadly, there are many other components of the pandemic that we don't know yet. We don't know. We're seeing surges in infection rates throughout the country. We're obviously concerned that amateur sport and professional sport, for that matter, could be suspended further uh, based on timing. We're here. We're at the cusp of the launch of a, a number of professional leagues in bubble environments uh, this month, mm -hmm. in fact, including the PLL, which is a professional men's field league that's going to do a three-week season in Utah. Right. But but we, uh, as an organization, we, it's really hard for us to project the next six months based on the unknown surrounding these the, the pandemic. So uh, it's hit us hard, and but we've repositioned the organization, fortified the organization. We've got good uh, operating reserves, which is a help. We've got a $20 million facility that we moved into in 2016, which is 
debt-free, which helps. And we've had the support, quite frankly, of some very generous donors and our membership, for that matter, who who understand the type of value we're providing, not only while play is occurring, but also outside of play. So we've got a ways to go to get through this valley, but I think we're we're well positioned to get there successfully. Yeah, you touched on obviously your membership and the impact that the loss of events has had on that. Give me an idea, Steve, from your organization's perspective here. What has been happening on events? Have U.S. lacrosse's events come back at all? Are you just monitoring clubs and and other parties out there that are that are having events? What has been coming back, if anything, so far in lacrosse? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we've we suspended all of our events, both at our headquarters and also remotely. Our national team development program has been suspended. We've suspended all of our national team tryouts and player camps. Uh, so really everything we have had scheduled kind of April through the end of July and at least partially in August has been canceled. Relative to the other tournaments out there, there are a lot not unlike any sports, any other sports, the lacrosse tournament space is full of independent owner operators Mm -hmm. that are doing everything they can to stage their events in this environment because they're business owners as well and have been negatively impacted as a result of uh, the pandemic. However, there's obviously a dynamic tension that's occurring between these independent owner operators that are pushing to conduct tournaments in this environment and the health and safety of players and their families. And so, you know, we, like many other sports, a number of weeks ago issued return to play guidelines for, for lacrosse, which were led by a a working group of our sports science and safety committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that and, and how you approach that. Well, it's it's you know every sport's a bit different in terms of the risk it it presents. Obviously, you can imagine some sports in which players must be in constant contact with each other in order to compete, and there are other sports in which that's less of a case. But we, um, you know, we as an organization, we invested early on soon after our inception into the importance of sports science and safety and creating structures within an organization to surround ourselves with healthcare experts in a variety of fields to help us make really in well-informed choices about rules and other interventions to assure player safety. And that's been a major commitment from our organization for the last uh, 22 years uh, since our formation. And we, we pulled from this sports science and safety committee a, a subset of of experts who helped staff craft these return to play guidelines based on the unique components of our particular sport. Mm -hmm. And um, we just actually launched our stage five return to play guidelines, which which is our recommendations of what needs to be in place and should be in place in order to Uh, provide a safe environment for kids in a full tournament atmosphere. These will clearly be controversial, Jason, uh, again, because not all tournament owner operators are, uh, have the same relative motivations that we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we think it's very, very important for us to do our best to inform parents who are really the consumers uh, of their child's lacrosse opportunity of, of the choices they have and, and what they should be expecting from their club programs and their tournament experiences in this very challenging environment. 
Yeah, I should say, Steve, obviously, I've been reading a lot of these guidelines that different sports have been putting together just to look for commonalities, look for the differences. As you mentioned, of course, every sport by their nature is going to have unique challenges and and yours being uh, one where people just have to be in contact with each other during competition. It struck me, at least in your initial guidelines that uh, unless I was reading it wrong, you weren't necessarily encouraging uh, competitive play right away, which isn't the case for a number of other sports. It, it seemed to me like you were urging a more cautious approach, at least to the competitive aspect of the game. We absolutely were and uh, and continue to do so. I think, you know, we're, you know, there uh, there's been plenty written about the challenges of the pandemic relative to child and parent safety, obviously, public health. Uh, there's been a lot written in terms of mental health, uh, you know, the isolation of children and the importance of physical activity uh, to children's healthy development. And certainly there, for older age groups, there is a real angst about the college recruiting process for those young athletes who, uh, whose really uh, recruiting process has been suspended. Obviously, the NCAA has extended its non-recruiting period through the end of August. So coaches will not be attending these uh, recruiting tournaments in any sport personally. But we long were concerned about, one, the importance of player and family safety, public health concerns. Number two, you know, after an extended uh, suspension of play, the real concern is young, young developing athletes having the time they need to return to full activity. Right. And uh, the concern about orthopedic injury that, that could spike in the event that players went immediately back to high, highly competitive play in the event that was safe to do relative to virus spread. So we absolutely recommended a very cautious approach. And quite frankly, from some cl- club and tournament owner operators, we're uh, not met with open arms in that regard. Again, because our motivations are a bit different than theirs. As I said, we're in you know it's July 1st, and there are many tournaments in lacrosse that are scheduled to go off. Some have gone off even recently, some of whom we're trying to work with to mitigate risk. Uh, Jason, we were faced with an interesting dilemma. Should we, uh, knowing that these tournament owner operators will do their best to execute their tournaments, should we ignore them? Knowing that thousands, if not tens of thousands of our members may be competing, or should we try to establish kind of best practice risk mitigation guidelines in the hope that they would be able to, A, be willing to accept them and able to enforce them. And so that, to date, that's the, the tack we took. We, th- we thought the greater good was for us to do our best knowing that these tournaments, some of these tournaments were operating to provide guidelines out there that tournament owner operators could follow and that our members would benefit from. How long that can occur, I mean, we re- Consider it daily, quite frankly, based on yeah. uh, infection spikes uh, by state, by region. But um, to sum it all up, absolutely, we were always have been and continue to be most focused on the safety of players and their families and policy decisions we make. What, if anything, Steve, are you hearing from parents, obviously at the youth level of kids who are competing? Are you getting the sense that parents are as concerned about you know, the health and safety risks from this virus as they are just getting their kids out to, to play and, and just start competing again? Yeah, I, I think it varies by location, but there's no doubt that parents have a high degree of angst generally. Uh, feeling like, um, and this is kind of a, a broader challenge with respect to the youth sports landscape in the United States, 
largely privatized these days, or at least large components of youth sport are privatized. And parents not being, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, as informed consumers as they really need to be. There's a pressure way too early to sports specialize. There's a pressure way too early to feel like a son or daughter needs to be seen. And those pressures, I think, are contributing to, in some cases, some some misplaced priorities. So I think parents, instead of saying, you know what, in some cases, I'm just not comfortable sending my son or daughter to a particular tournament for a particular club team, or, hey, I wonder what precautions my club team is taking in its practice planning. Is it following U.S. lacrosse return to play guidelines? In many cases, parents uh, really are not well informed despite our best efforts. And so, uh, among other things, we're hopeful that we can provide at least some guidance to help empower parents to be the consumers they need to be in order to assure that their their child's and future children's experiences are all that they should be. But very much a lot of angst out there. Uh, a lot of, we've heard from parents, I responded to a couple personally today, actually, who, um, who were looking for U.S. lacrosse to essentially make their decision for them. Hmm. And I wish we could kind of control private enterprise. We don't no NGB really has that, that that power to restrict or control private enterprise from conducting tournaments or or running club teams uh, different ways. We do put out best practices and a lot of information in this regard, and we do work with a lot of tournaments and uh, club owner operators to uh, who embrace the effort to work with us to provide the best environment they possibly can. Some do not, many do not, I should say, and. I think the key moving forward, Jason, is to continue the drumbeat of parents being well-informed consumers, particularly given the significant money and time they're investing in their child's athletic experience. I agree with you. I think there's pressures on all end, and especially for your sport, Steve, where there is such a robust system, as you've been talking about, of of club sports and private enterprise organizing some of these events um, to have your organization's name associated with it as well, either sanctioning or supporting these events, I imagine, is a, a dilemma for you as well when we start talking about liability and some of the serious issues potentially involved. It, it absolutely is a dilemma. It's a moral dilemma as well as a risk management dilemma. And, you know, back to my prior point, you know, U.S. lacrosse could completely retrench here and, you know, allow the Wild West to remain wild. I think we've felt that we have a moral responsibility to, regardless of whether these events affiliate with us or not, to put out well-informed, well-researched public health perspectives specific to our game to give parents the additional perspective they need to make the right decisions. And quite frankly, to give, uh, I think, responsible club and tournament owner operators that resource as well. It's not easy. You know, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, the concern about privatization of youth sports is obviously accessibility and Mm -hmm. the increase, uh, you know, the significant time and money that it costs to participate, which most Americans can't afford. You know, there are, you know, the, the youth sports experience in the United States is I think most would say is broken, uh, certainly not integrated, and is more and more exclusive. So, you know, that's the challenge within and the framework within which we're working. And tournaments and clubs are part of the fabric of our sport and every other sport. I think the challenge, you know, maybe moving a bit to a related topic that I'm concerned about relative to our sport's health and growth is what's the impact of the pandemic's economic hit to 
so many families on their ability uh, and their child's ability to continue to play youth sports. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm worried about that. My counterparts in other sports are worried about that. The last time we had a recession, we saw a significant reduction in sports participation, and most are predicting that today. Mm-hmm. You know, from what we've already experienced and what's anticipated to be experienced for the foreseeable future. So that's that's a real concern for us, too, is making sure that sports continue to be accessible for all. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's an issue that is crossing over all sports at all levels at the moment. And it is, like everything else, so much unknown about what the ability will be for, you know, in the case of youth sports, as you said, parents being able to afford it uh, moving forward and attending your events. Steve, you mentioned your events that U.S. Lacrosse has are canceled or at least on hold until August. What is that discussion like for your other events? I know you have a big convention at at the start of the year every year as well. How are you approaching the return of the events that you own and operate? Yeah, it's a a great question because, you know, a lot of it's a crystal ball. Uh, We we do a national, we host a national convention each year, draws over 7,000 coaches, officials, and administrators. It's uh, going to be in Baltimore, scheduled to be in Baltimore in in mid-January of 21 this year. We're also hosting a world championship, uh, women's world championship at Towson University next July, uh, which uh, has a record number of of nations participating, 30, 30 nations. So we've got two big events. Obviously, the convention is annual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world championship is periodic. We, we periodically uh, bid on and host uh, world championships in various disciplines. But we've got two big events right in our radar screen. We, we're fortunate to, that we work with Visit Baltimore and Al Hutchinson, the CEO there, and have a, a high degree of confidence in their, the spirit of partnership. Obviously, uh, sports and, and visitors bureaus are very challenged these days uh, for the same reasons. And, you know, we we have a great deal of flexibility going into that January convention in the event that we can't host it in the traditional sense. We're, we're already planning for a, a virtual alternative. And I would say the likely event that we can't gather uh, like, we, like we're used to gathering for events like that, even into January. Uh, so I think we're well prepared there. Uh, we're less prepared and working with our International Federation World Lacrosse on the potential suspension of the Women's World Championship. The um, World Lacrosse currently sponsors, uh, uh, we currently has five World Championship disciplines and at least one obviously is held each year on a quadrennial basis. And the under 19 men's championship was scheduled to be in Limerick, Ireland in 10 days to start in 10 mm-hmm. days. And that, the world across suspended that a number of months ago and, uh, and postponed it till next year. So we're hopeful certainly that we can get a handle on this crisis as a country uh, well before a time in which it may threaten the world championship here in, uh, in Baltimore next year. I do want to ask you, Steve, on a, a topic, I guess, sort of related to the last point you were bringing up about economics. And with regards to equity, there has been a conversation in the lacrosse world, I know, in the last couple of weeks uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing and some of the national discussion that's been taking place on uh, on issues of race and, and diversity. I was wondering if you could just address what's been happening in your sport and U.S. lacrosse's response to some of those issues that have been uh, top of mind here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, um, you know, we, we issued a statement on June 1st and, um, 
And we've, like many organizations, you know, we've invested significantly in increasing accessibility to our sport over the years, millions of dollars to support the development of the game and to make sure that every kid is accessible with, with a specific focus on at-risk communities. But what we haven't done is focused on the elimination of racism in our sport. And that is, there's a significant difference between the two. And the same, I think, type of dialogue that has been unlocked in many organizations has been unlocked in ours, which I'm humbled and thrilled about. You know, I'm a 59-year-old white man, and I will never appreciate the advantages I had as a white man, but I am learning to understand the differences and yearn to understand those differences in a meaningful way. Our sport is, is not diverse, per se. We've made some progress in the last 10 to 20 years, but we have a long way to go to achieve our goal of making uh, this sport accessible and welcoming to all. And so there's, we, we, a lot has happened within our organization. We had a board meeting uh, national board meeting of our operating board uh, two Saturdays ago. We had very focused discussion on this topic of racism and social justice generally and within our sport specifically because it's here. Yeah. We had some wonderful conversations with the people of color within our staff who shared perspectives, not only of their own respective experiences that we obviously never heard before, but also shared recommendations and suggestions for how we can improve our organization, not just within staff, but the broader volunteer base of our organizational structure, board committees, subcommittees. And to your credit, I've seen I've seen some of that uh, manifest itself on your own website and through your channels as well, as far as sharing some of those stories. Yeah, and I think uh, to, you know, I appreciate you for pointing that out. I mean, I think that's our other obligation, and, and I'm proud to say this is you know while this is you know a seminal moment in, with respect to race and culture in our country. And in our case, in our sport, we have tried to do a good job historically of celebrating diversity, inclusion in our game and the importance of that to a best practice team culture. We, a couple of years ago, we launched a cultural competency curriculum. It's all about, it's not, it's not unique to race, but it, it involves all races, creeds, sexual orientations, you know, the, the welcoming of everybody to our game and the strength and value of that to a positive sport culture. But we need to do a lot more. I mean, and I think I'll tell you, honestly, I have, this has been a topic that has been very emotional for me for a long period of time. And as I say, a 59-year-old white, white male who's a leader of an organization, I have been hesitant, resistant to lean as deeply into this issue as I should because of fear, because of ignorance, because of uh, being concerned about saying or doing the wrong thing. And I think what one of the things uh, that has happened to me through the support of my board, people of color on my board, coworkers, is that I, I feel this, this sense of freedom now to really lean into this issue openly as an older white male. And, mm -hmm. and also the belief that my voice as an older white male in support of Black Lives Matter and, and the elimination of racism in our game and more broadly in society is 
very important and powerful and must be used consistently. So it's been an epiphany for me as well, uh, professionally and personally. Yeah, I feel like we could have an entire episode just devoted to that topic uh, with pretty much everyone we have on of late, but um, obviously a lot more work to be done. But it seems like your organization certainly has taken those first steps to have the conversation as well, which is great. Uh, Steve, I've got a couple of topics I want to hit on as well before our time is up. Uh, You mentioned the uh, PLL, the Premier Lacrosse League, which uh, launched last year. I realize U.S. lacrosse as a national governing body doesn't uh, have any say necessarily over what happens at the professional level, but I I am curious since it's one of the most high-profile aspects of the sport. Um, you know, that organization has come along. Major League Lacrosse is still a- an entity. There's the National Lacrosse League. What is your sense at the professional level of, uh, is there room for all of these leagues and, and what's been happening on that front? Well, I mean, I think on the one hand, it's wonderful because we've got, you know, these, the various leagues obviously showcase the greatest players that our sport has today and helps to raise the profile of, of our sport the relationships, the respective relationships the PLL has with with NBC and the MLL with ESPN, of course, the NLL with its own, you know, broadcast relationships, really, you know, there's never been uh, more lacrosse on television, whether it's whether it's co- the college game, with the exception, obviously, of this season, or mm-hmm. the pro game. I mean, the challenge, of course, is that we're still a small sport. And, you know, if, you know, as I've shared with the MLL leadership and the PLL leadership, it's certainly a shame that in that particular case, we've got two competing entities that are being fueled by investment in a very challenging environment. And, and I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm just talking about the yeah. launch of, you know, of professional sports enterprises. And so that's been unfortunate. And I'm hopeful that in the near future, then there can be some meeting of the minds between those respective professional leagues, because I don't think our sport, and I think most agree, our sport's not big enough to sustain two professional leagues in the same discipline. But we're thankful uh, for the investment that people have made in both of those platforms, and they've certainly have been very positive to the increased visibility of our sport. Yeah, and I, I've seen it firsthand. Uh, I was at the Major League Lacrosse Championships uh, here in Denver, where I live last year, which was a great event, you know, a great final game and uh, the local team involved. But I think, you know, the attendance was uh, certainly less than what the organizers were hoping for, uh, despite what was a really good product on the field. Yeah. So the, the business realities of, of launching professional franchises are are understood. And I think what, what we, we have to do as a sport and not just at the professional level, but at every level you know, we've got to integrate effort a lot more than we are. I mean, a lot of people say, and I agree, that our sport is a bit disjointed and there's opportunity for us to be smarter about the collective investment in the growth of the base and also marketing and communicating the highest level of play as well. Yeah, I want to close, Steve, on another potential opportunity. We touched on it earlier. Uh, You are the vice president of World Lacrosse, which is the international federation. Federation is now being led by Jim Shear, who uh, a number of our listeners will be familiar with as the former CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee. There are other people involved that have uh, Olympic backgrounds now in the international federation, and it's been no secret that lacrosse is eyeing inclusion at the Olympic level. What's the uh, what's the case to be made for why lacrosse belongs at the Olympics and why the push right now? Well, I appreciate that. The you know, first of all, we're, we're thrilled to have Jim. Jim's been on board for over three years now, and and there's no better leader to uh, to kind of fuel our aspirations. The organization World Lacrosse has undergone tremendous and positive change over the last few years. 
from a governance standpoint, from a from a structural standpoint, from a world championship platform standpoint. But I think you know we were thrilled a couple of years ago to be provisionally recognized by the IOC and and have confidence that will uh, that recognition that full recognition is forthcoming. I think you know I, the only correction I'll be uh, I'll have for you is that we want to return lacrosse to the Olympic program because years and years ago the sport was part of both the medal and exhibition programs and we were excited about that history early on in the Olympic in the modern Olympic uh, games and we're we're excited. I mean we think. That is, lacrosse is obviously a fast and dynamic sport. It's growing significantly around the world as well. World lacrosse is investing unprecedented dollars in the growth of the game. We think it can contribute to the overall strength of the Olympic program. Uh, we think it can, it will generate more eyeballs, both digitally and in person. We just think it's a, it's a wonderful addition to the Olympic program. And certainly, if we're fortunate to achieve that goal, the opportunity to showcase lacrosse to more than half of the world's population will do nothing but increase the stature of our sport. I think probably the controversial component to that, Jason, has been the need to develop new, new smaller-sided disciplines um, to, to better position our sport for Olympic inclusion and mm-hmm. for a broader international growth, for that matter. And so, you know, those, almost every sport, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, is is either in the process of or has already developed smaller-sided versions of the sport for strategic reasons. And we're in the final stages of doing that now. And actually, the General Assembly of World Lacrosse meets in October and will vote on our final rules for that smaller-sided discipline and will begin uh, competition next year. With uh, all the hats that you wear, Steve, how much of your day is devoted to the international game and, and how much is devoted to things nationally uh, with U.S. lacrosse? Well, my world lacrosse role is one of my volunteer roles and my obviously my U.S. lacrosse role is my real job. And I will say that it's been a challenge, obviously, with all that's happening that we already discussed, but within U.S. lacrosse and domestically here, but also given the tremendous pace of change and evolution with world lacrosse, it's been a challenge. I would say, you know, at least 10 to 15 hours on world lacrosse on a, in a seven-day period these days. You know, I'm chairing a couple of committees um, um, as well as uh, obviously actively engaged in the executive, uh, in the board, as I should say. So it, it's a lot of work and effort, but it's a pleasure because it's a passionate group of individuals from throughout the world who really have a vision uh, for the game and share a vision for the game because what it's what it's all about is in the international game is is what it's all about here domestically giving mm-hmm. more kids more uh, more adults the opportunity to play this great game which is what my career has been all about and is the hope Steve that uh, that possibly you could get inclusion by the time Los Angeles comes around in 28 2028 is our goal Jason and we're you know our strategic plan includes that objective among others and so we're working diligently and and feel feel like we have a real shot to to earn our position so but it'll be a lot of work and back to that little luck uh, that we started the conversation off with it'll take a little luck as well yeah, well, I think that's a perfect way to to wrap things up. Uh, you have certainly had some luck, but I would argue that you've had a lot of skill involved there as well, Steve. So, you know, congratulations to you for your uh, continued effort in shepherding the sport, especially now in what have been, you know, probably the most challenging couple of years that you've had in the role. But, uh, you know, I appreciate your taking the time to chat with us and giving us your insight on the sport. And I have no doubt 
that will be in touch. And I look forward to one day being able to get back on that uh, lovely croquet pitch with you, if not a, a lacrosse field at some point here soon. Jason, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to spend some time with you. I really appreciate, appreciate all you've done to raise the profile of sport, all sport, really nationally and internationally. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Steve. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.